Tariq Ali is a writer, filmmaker, and a leading figure of the international left since the 60s. He is a long-standing editor of the New Left Review and a political commentator published on every continent. His books include Pirates of the Caribbean, Bush in Babylon, The Clash of Fundamentalisms, The Obama Syndrome, and the latest Winston Churchill, His Times, His Crimes, which I have right here with me. It's a fantastic read in which we're going to be talking about today. Mr. Ali, welcome. Very good to be with you. I've just watched the Telegraph's interview with historian Andrew Roberts, of all people, who wrote his own biography of Winston Churchill, of course, which is quite different. And at the beginning of the interview, they simply ask him, was Winston Churchill racist? To which he, of course, replies that he absolutely was not. So I thought it would be only fair that I extend the the same courtesy to you. So was Winston Churchill, in fact, a racist? Not only was he a racist, but actually he never bothered to even deny it because he knew perfectly well uh, that colonialism and British rule in Africa and uh, parts of Asia uh, was based, one of the central ideologies of it was white superiority. Uh, he and others like him, he wasn't alone, but they made no uh, bones about being a superior civilization and uh, effectively uh, a racist. But the fact, what is interesting is that a historian uh, such as Andrew Roberts, for whom I have no respect whatsoever, um, is uh, in fact denying it. I mean, most intelligent Churchill historians who don't, you know, most of whom wouldn't agree with me, wouldn't, would not deny that. And there's some good books out there uh, on Churchill. Clive Ponting's biography of many years ago uh, was very good. Um, and uh, the more recent books uh, published, likewise, uh, they don't hide this. So the fact that Roberts is sort of still attempting to hide it, the only good thing one can say about that is that he realizes now that racism is not a good thing. If we explore this a little bit further, because his answers are absolutely fascinating, presented with many quite damning quotes, you mention many of them in your book, Roberts says that the following, the fact that Churchill said things that were derogatory to people of other races does not make him somebody who wants bad things to happen to people of other races, which is what a racist is. This seems like Olympic level acrobatics of sorts. No, you can say horribly racist stuff and yet you're still not actually a racist. Anyway, he further states that Churchill was simply a product of his time, during which there was a quote-unquote scientific belief that there is a hierarchy of races and that, of course, white people are on top. People often say that we shouldn't judge past leaders with the moral standards of our time. So was Churchill's racism kind of startling even for his own time? It was, and a number of... uh conservative colleagues of his later denounced him in the 40s and even early 50s uh, for his uh, racism. I mean, his refusal to accept the idea of independence for India now seems completely loony. 
But to some, it was loony even at the time. I mean, there's absolutely no reason why an independent settlement couldn't have been negotiated with India in the 20s or 30s prior to the First World War, uh, Second World War. So m- most intelligent uh, people uh, accept that, you know, his flaws were many and went quite, uh, quite deep. But the fact that the uh, British propaganda machine uses Andrew Roberts to heighten the cult of uh, uh, Churchill makes it all the more necessary to have alternative books so that people can... I'm not saying stop reading Roberts. I'm not one of those people who advises people not to read books. So read it carefully, but then read other books that are around as well, including mine, to get a try and get as complete a picture um, as you as you can. Roberts is, you know, now part of the Churchill industry. He can't be taken seriously. What were the some of the most glaring examples of Churchill's racism? Well, you know, racism was uh, linked very much with uh, Britain's colonial role, first in uh, North America, and then as they were driven out by their former allies. Uh, in India, they moved on to India, occupying India from 1757 to, that's when they started to 1947, occupying parts of Africa, which wouldn't give them their freedom, organizing mega tortures and gulag-type camps in Kenya, for instance, uh, which is more known about, but which in- many historians, including serious historians, have um, tended to ignore. So racism shouldn't be taken, in my opinion, as something that was isolated from the way in which Britain governed the world. I mean, it started with the Native Americans. I mean, Churchill said that the Red Indians, as he called them, had no right to their land, no more right to their land than the uh, blacks in Australia how he referred to the uh, uh, the Aboriginals or the Palestinian Arabs in Palestine. I mean, it's very consistent that Western white race uh, Europeans had the right to conquer the world because they had a superior civilization. And so this was part of the theory of Western civilization uh, being the model uh, for the rest of the world, which the rest of the world doesn't accept today at all, uh, as we see in the Ukraine war, but which many didn't accept at the time. I mean, to say to China, with a civilization going back 2,000 years, and similarly, to a lesser extent, Indian civilization in its uh, early uh, uh, years was incredibly uh, educative and important, despite all flaws. So the fact that the West became dominant, uh, first militarily, then in colonial imperial terms, uh, and then ideologically, uh, is a sign of the fact that their economic model became very dynamic, capitalism became very dynamic, and started trading with the rest of the world. Trade required the construction of armies to protect the trade, uh, navies to protect the trade routes. Later, uh, occupation of countries uh, became vital to make sure that no other power could take the uh, trade away from these continents. 
the United States took over South America and kept the European powers out of it, saying it's our backyard, stay out. And so Britain, France concentrated on Africa and Asia, Indonesia was taken by the Dutch. I mean, it's a systematic pattern. Britain was the most successful and the the most experienced of these powers. You quote an anecdote in the book. I forgot who Winston Churchill is talking to, but I, I think it's quite le- during his later years. Maybe it's during the Second World War where he says that even after the war, we have to uphold white supremacy. Yeah. Could you talk a bit more about that? Well, he did say all this, and he believed it. You know, he wasn't uh, like one of these uh, modern politicians who say one thing one day and another thing the next uh, in order to stay in power. I mean, you know, from his own point of view, he was quite a consistent believer in the empire. For him, the most important thing in the world is the British Empire. And purely from his point of view and the conservative point of view, this was not such a wrong assessment. Now everyone disagrees with it. At the time, the Labour Party was for empire as well. And I always tell people this, that it wasn't just the Conservatives who maintained the empire. Labour did it. After all, in 1945, when Labour won the election and defeated Churchill, uh, it was perfectly possible for them to dismantle the empire. They had no option but to do so in India because there were uprisings, strikes, huge movements for freedom and independence in India. But they, they could have also, why didn't they hang on to Africa? Why did they hang on to the Middle East, uh, which created further problems for the people in those countries? So the British Empire was inscribed into the fabric of Brit- English and Scottish society, uh, and it went very deep. And uh, Churchill was shameless about defending this state of affairs. And, you know, I mean, uh, as you can see from my book, I'm a sort of very staunch critic of him. But I understand what he was doing. And simply to say racism isn't enough. Hmm. You know, that was just taken for granted. I mean, the whole of British society was uh, uh, very racist in the days of empire. There were a handful of very brave people, uh, workers and intellectuals, who did start to raise questions. But as for those who ran Britain, uh, the politicians and the military and the court, uh, these three elements in, in British society, they were very strongly for the empire. Yeah, I remember now, I think you write that in the book somewhere, that even a lot of working class people were staunch defenders and believers in the empire. Yeah, right. and not just that, but many working class people, whether we like it or not, voted Tory. Right up to this day, I mean, there's a huge switch during uh, Margaret Thatcher's time from, um, you know, very well-paid workers to the Conservative Party. But uh, even then, she didn't have a majority if the vote had been carried out in a proportional representative system. But still, there has always been working-class support for the Conservative Party. And in some cases, it's... uh, linked to empire, and in more recent cases, it's linked to a misguided view 
the Tories run the economy better and we've done quite well out of them. Well, no one in their right mind would say that, looking at the situation in Britain today. The NHS under threat, schools crumbling because no one paid attention to the cement blocks with which were used after the war to build these schools. And here, Labour is just as responsible as the Conservatives. But, you know, they didn't think for the future. In that sense, the Victorians and the Victorian ruling uh, class was much sharper in the sense that they did think they were building for the future. So it's only, you know, over the last 25 years or so that many of the buildings built by the Victorians very few of them actually collapsed on their own. They were taken down to build the monstrosities which are now uh, affecting everyone. Back to Churchill. You talked about it uh, a little bit already, but I want to explore it a little bit more. Another thread in the book is Churchill's willingness to use deadly violence against anyone, even against his own countrymen, in the defense of the established order, the empire, and the class system within it. For example, he sent the army famously against the miners who were striking in Wales. Abroad, he was in favor of an armed intervention against the revolutionaries in Russia with quite disastrous results. And there's many, many more cases. Now, this might be a bit of a naive question, but do you think that Churchill actually believed that the system he is upholding is the best thing for British people and humanity at large, maybe? Or was it all just about protecting the privileges of the upper classes of which he was part of? Both were interrelated. Right. The system was good because it preserved and protected the privilege of the rich, as it does today, even more clearly and sharply than it did in Churchill's time. I mean, there's no shame left now in saying it. Yeah, the rich are rich. They deserve to be rich, and their rights uh, need to be protected. You know, so Churchill's view of uh, 60, 70 years ago is now the common sense of both political parties. You know, basically, they defend that view. And Churchill and his generation of politicians defended it too, though it has to be said that even within the Conservative Party, before Churchill's time, slightly before Churchill's time, there were what we could call liberal conservatives. Uh, Churchill's, um, I mean, not the Neville Chamberlain opponent of Churchill, but Joseph Chamberlain, uh, and Neville later pushed through and were in favor of reforms, giving some rights to workers and creating the rudiments of a welfare state, which you know later became large under Labour. But um, Churchill himself wasn't too keen on that. He went along with it when it suited him. But basically, the defense of the British way of life by which you mean the privileges of the landed aristocracy and the new rising bourgeoisie getting stronger and stronger were the key. And so attacking the miners in Tony Pandy or threatening the uh, Scottish workers 
um, in Glasgow, which Churchill did, uh, was part and parcel of this view. At home, uh, there's an enemy within, and this is the enemy that challenges our system, or threatens it, or demands that it reform itself. Uh, and abroad, our enemy is anyone who challenges the British Empire or threatens it. So the intervention in Russia was not simply related to Russia after the Russian Revolution, but Churchill saw that this revolution uh, could damage Europe, but more importantly, the British Empire. And he said as much. So better get rid of it uh, quickly. Now, the interesting thing is that they were so keen on uh, preserving their own interests, the rulers of Britain, that when the February government after the revolution in 1917 said that the royal family, the Russian royal family, the kings, the Tsar of Russia and the King of England were first cousins, uh, you know, Victoria's grandchildren. Nikolai and George, right? Yeah. Yeah. The Russians had send a ship, we've got them, take them over. And and both the kings So they suggested for the Brits to take them. Yeah. Right. And the Brits didn't want them because Lord Curzon, whose foreign secretary at the time was scared it would enhance uh, uh upheavals in Britain itself. Large numbers of people would be opposed to giving refuge to the Tsar of Russia who was seen generally as a tyrannical uh, character and an absolutely vicious anti-Semite. And uh, they were scared, and the king finally said, no, we can't have them here. So it's one thing to criticize the Bolshevik leaderships for executing them, which was another tradition started, by the way, in Britain, which was the first country to execute its king uh, in the 17th century. But in any event, the British rulers turned down the Russian offer of taking the Russian royal family safely out of Russia. Not many people know this, but it is a fact. And so um, Churchill's attempt to defeat that revolution, you know, was a complete and utter disaster. There were mutinies, there was dissent at very high levels. British senior officers said, what the hell are we doing here? One had to be, one was court-martialed for challenging the official views of uh, Churchill and the British government at the time. Etc. So there was opposition to Churchill um, inside the army as well. The generals didn't particularly care for him, even during the Second World War, by the way. Uh, and that is what explains the fact which Andrew Roberts and others try <laughs> and, and tell fibs about is that how come such a popular leader was defeated immediately after the war came to an end. The the Labour Party won the 1945 election. I mean, Churchill himself was absolutely stunned. He believed all the propaganda, not understanding that conservative policies from the 30s onwards, Churchill's own role in crushing the general strike of 1926, his assault on the miners, just open class warfare, had not made him popular with ordinary people. I mean, I cite instances in the very first chapter 
of uh, my book uh, on this. It was hardly a secret. And um, a sort of informal but authorized parliament of soldiers in Egypt in 1944. Labour had a huge majority. Some other party was second. The Tories were third. So, you know, this is to be taken into account in Churchill worship or people who worship Churchill can't understand it, or would rather not understand it, find uh, spurious excuses to explain it. I think Andrew Roberts said that Churchill himself was still wildly popular after the war, but the government wasn't, because people wanted a welfare state. So if the government was unpopular, how come Attlee, who was deputy prime minister under Churchill, was elected prime minister, and Churchill, the actual prime minister, was cast aside? It's nonsense, all that, actually. Basically, the Tories were hoping that Churchill's prestige, laboriously built up by propaganda during the war itself, um, would be enough to win them the election, and it wasn't. That's the reality. I'm fascinated by this opportunistic streak in Churchill's character. Hollywood movies these days usually portray him as an eccentric but deeply moral man who understands the meaning of sacrifice in hard times. In other words, a patriot and a conservative, yes, but a true believer. In your book, however, we find that the man pretty much did what was necessary to survive politically, including switching parties a couple of times, which is not well known. At least I didn't know that before. So his personal ambition seemed quite limitless. How is it possible for him to survive multiple catastrophic blunders, such as Gallipoli, uh, switching parties, the Russian intervention, and yet still remained kind of relevant at the highest level of British politics. Because he was a clever political operator. Right. And there are some in many countries. People who operate themselves and make sure that they're close to power. Of course, he couldn't do it with the Labour Party, but with the Liberals, when it was uh, Conservatives versus Liberals, Churchill saw correctly no basic difference between the Liberals and the Conservatives, you know, and often he tended to agree more with the Liberals than the Conservative Party. That is why Conservatives absolutely loathed him. You you know, you Boris Johnson's book reveals this very openly, because Boris uh, identified with Churchill, and given that he himself was not popular inside his own party, he explains in some detail why Churchill was hated by the Conservative Party, though he slightly underplays the fact that one reason for the hatred was that Churchill was regarded as, uh, you know, a chameleon, someone who would switch parties to get make sure he had a top job in the cabinet. And yeah, on that, he's no different from many politicians, actually. I mean, people have been switching parties since then, since Churchill. Not on a grand scale, but, you know, not on the leadership level, but Tory MPs joining Blair when they thought that the future lay with Blair or Labour MPs when Corbyn was in power deciding to switch sides and join the Conservative Party. And this sort of game goes on because politics has now become a, a bit of a joke, really. It's not taken yeah, it's all part of the same lukewarm stew, isn't it? Mainstream left and so-called mainstream conservatives. 
these days. I wrote a little book on this called The Extreme Centre, which is that centre-left or centre-right are both basically the same. They believe in the same economics. They believe in the same global alliances. They fight wars. Uh, they push through neoliberal measures. They haven't been able to break with that. And so what is the basic difference? The difference is essentially today, in my view, there's no difference, basic difference right. between Labour and uh, Conservative. They argue for similar things. Labour tries to give it a gloss of being more humane, but closing down or, or privatize or not stopping the privatization, uh, creeping privatization of the National Health Service is not, uh, uh, you know, they do it just like the Tories, except with smiles on their faces. And uh, it's a horrific uh, situation. And so Churchill kept to the consensus agreed during and after the war that there had to be social reforms. He did accept that. Uh, and now uh, his followers in both parties are doing the same in relation to Thatcher's consensus, the consensus she created. So there are lots of lessons to be learned from what happened in the past. I mean, my main sort of plea in this book was, please read everything. Try and read as much as you can and end this absurd cult of Churchill, which was built up really during the Falklands War, uh, when uh, uh, Mrs. Thatcher used him uh, to try and win the war. But the people who actually won the war, the, uh, the obviously Britain formally, but with the backing of the United States and that other well-known Democrat, General Pinochet of Chile. Mm. So these are the two key figures who helped win the uh, Falklands War. And that's the time that Churchill came into. We're going to come back to that. Yes, yes, we're going to come back to that. Uh, but if we travel through time one last time, Churchill's biggest claim to fame is, of course, the Second World War, and especially the fact that he supposedly perceived Hitler for the real threat that he was from the very beginning. Your book presents a bit of an alternative view to that. Could you expand on Churchill's view of fascism and later Nazism a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that conservatism in Europe of different kinds, uh, but more or less united on this, saw the fascists as a huge relief. Why? Because the fascists were prepared to come out onto the streets and use violence against the Bolsheviks, against communists, against trade unions, and against left social democrats. And Churchill himself says this is what we could never do. And he says, of course, we had never reached a situation in Britain where there was any threat from the left. He says that, or the far left. But he says in Europe there was. So Churchill was a very staunch supporter of Benito Mussolini, the Italian fascist dictator. And uh, he said in Italy, which Mussolini had framed and actually inscribed on the walls of one of his houses uh, in that country, in which Churchill said, had I been an Italian, I would have voted for Signor Mussolini as the only person able to defeat communism, etc., etc. So that's how the world was seen. 
And um, I mean, in in France, it was the same. Uh, fairly, you know, I would say fifty percent of the population were for the right in France, but against the French left. And when the Germans occupied France, most of France collaborated, some reluctantly, some very eagerly. So this whole notion that the French resistance defeated the Nazis, I mean, they were very heroic people and one admires them, but they didn't defeat the Germans. The Germans were defeated by, you know, on a European level, by the dreaded Red Army uh, of the Soviet Union. They're the ones who were centrally responsible for the military defeat of the uh, Germans. And then the Americans with their amazing amount of uh, factories devoted to arms, made sure that uh, Britain, but also the Soviet Union, was supplied with weapons by them during the war. So I see the Second World War largely as the triumph of a strange Soviet-US alliance, which came into being more or less accidentally, the European conservative powers would have happily done a deal with the Nazis, as they did with Hitler's successors. I mean, quite a lot of the intelligence officers of the Third Reich were recruited into NATO's and uh, NATO's armies all over. This is what happened, which people try to ignore because it's slightly uh, embarrassing. And that victory uh, of the right infiltrating the armed forces of the post-war powers. I mean, you know, I remember talking to uh, some of the German students in the 60s who became terrorists. That's the only way to describe them. And I was arguing against them, saying it's not the way, it's crazy, you'll isolate yourselves, you'll be locked up. And they said, something people like you don't understand. And I said, people like me, they said, we mean people from Britain, who uh, Britain was never occupied by the uh, Third Reich. The French understand it more. I said, what don't I understand? And the woman talking to me who became one of the central leaders of the Baden-Meinhof gang. She said, to wake up every morning for my generation who were born during the war, and see that your father, your uncle, your older brother, your first cousin, sitting around having breakfast peacefully, reading the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung. These were people who worked for the SS. These were people who worked for the Third Reich. These were the people who killed the Jews. These were the people who led Germany to what it is. And we had to sit back quietly. So I said, I'm not suggesting you sit back quietly. But blowing up uh, American headquarters and military is not the right way. And they said, well, what the Americans are doing in Vietnam is exactly the same as what Germany did in large parts of, uh, of Europe. So that was the level of argument because they knew, and of course I never justified that way of uh, acting, but I did understand what they were talking about. And they knew, most Germans knew that had Hitler won and Hitler could have won, 
if the Japanese had stayed on course and instead of attacking Pearl Harbor had sent their armies into the Soviet Union, I think the Russian armies, they couldn't fight on two fronts at that stage. They would have collapsed. That is what Hitler wanted. And he was asking the Japanese emperor Hirohito for a you know, probable meeting at a summit in Vladivostok. Saying that's where we let's build our train systems and railways so we meet in Vladivostok to celebrate the final victory. Well, if the Japanese had done that, as many of their people were advising, the Americans would have accepted the new world order and collaborated with the German and Japanese fascists. And certainly most of Europe would have caved in. There might have been isolated pockets of resistance here and there, but it would have taken some time to get rid of these people, you know. So it wasn't an abstract question. Uh, and so the, the powers that were sympathetic to fascist rule um, were sympathetic for these reasons that who knows, Hitler might win. It did look as if he was going to win. And the mythology around Churchill is that he brought our troops back from Dunkirk, uh, the Dunkirk spirit, not understanding that Dunkirk portrayed in sort of history for idiots as a big victory was actually a huge defeat. And had Hitler not stopped his generals from carrying on the march to Dunkirk, the entire British expeditionary force would have been taken prisoner. He let the British go for reasons that are still debated. So they were lucky in the case of Japan attacking Pearl Harbor and not coming in through... uh, to, to, to do Russia like they'd done in 1904-1905, and the German leaders deciding to let the British survive in Dunkirk. These are two key mistakes from their point of view. I mean, thank God they did that, but that is what they did. So there's no big kudos for the British leaders in the Second World War. I mean, had Churchill, Churchill was a good war leader, you know, when he was waging war, Uh, either against the working class in Britain or against the foreign enemies who threatened the British Empire or against the colonial peoples, he was in his element. There's no two ways about that. And the reason uh, for that is is obvious, and I describe it in some detail in in, uh, my book. But the point is this. If Churchill hadn't existed, or had died in the First World War, or whatever, had fallen ill. Um, I think the British ruling elite would have found someone else to carry on the war and built such a person up again as the key leader. Uh, so, it, and, and, you know, what you said is correct. It is that tiny period of history in the 20th century, the Second World War period, that built up Churchill. And then, it's important to realize that despite that, he was quite you know, unpopular with large sections of the people. And satir- satirical attacks on him were common. Howard Brenton wrote this wonderful play for 
the Nottingham Playhouse, later transferred to the National Theatre, called the Churchill Play. I mean, to just get a feel of the mood in the late 50s, 60s, Brenton's play is 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 really perfect. So it's not that there was no one who didn't like him. Lots of people did, and they recalled him during the war since it was already being made into a cult with movies and this, that, and the other. But the uh, level in the, in the liberal media or uh, theatres, etc., he was criticised, you know, not viciously, except Brenton's playboard, quite vicious, but quite a lot of them weren't vicious, but realistic, saying this is what he did, this is what he didn't do. And uh, that is now forgotten, you see. They don't, uh, they don't even recall it, and that's why I felt it was important to write the book. I mean, people can agree with it, they can disagree with it, but it's got most of the facts out there. Mm. Yeah, I was thinking about the, this mythologizing that's growing out of Second World War that Churchill is a part of. You know, I was born in the Balkans, and yet as Eastern European kids, we were brought up after the fall of Yugoslavia on a steady diet of American and British war movies, creating an illusion that the war was won exclusively by the British and mostly the Americans. And then you grow up and you start reading a little bit. And I read somewhere there four-fifths of the war was fought in the East. And it's like, wait a minute, that sounds quite different than Saving Private Ryan portrays, or, I don't know, Dunkirk. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, during the war itself, and for 10 years at least afterwards, no intelligent person, whatever his or her politics, if you'd come up to them, and said who was which what was the key factor in winning the second world war many people say the russian army the red army won that war and the coverage of the red army's victories in the british media you have to go and look at them to realize it was acknowledged it had to be acknowledged and um, it was it was acknowledged Till the rewriting of history began. I mean, Yugoslavia is an interesting case in point. Unlike Greece, where Churchill was utterly vicious, utterly vicious, because the Greek islands uh, in the Mediterranean were important staging posts for the empire. It was strategically considered important. Yugoslavia wasn't. And... Uh, Churchill knew that the Germans had formed a government in Croatia. The first independent Croatian government was a Nazi government. I mean, you know, uh, and they couldn't be relied on. Uh, some of the Bosniaks were fighting for the Germans under pressure. Uh, the biggest resistance in the Second World War to the Germans came from, you know, the partisans led by Tito. They fought the Germans virtually to a standstill. And, uh, you know, that's why Tito maintained this independence even against Moscow. He said, we know what we did. And at one point he threatened Stalin, don't think we are like Hungary or this or that. Under your control, we are not. And any attempt made by the Russians to overrun Yugoslavia, we will arm all our people as we did against the Nazis. He said that. 
And so the Yugoslav resistance, which also now is being written out of the history of Yugoslavia by nationalist, ultra-nationalist embassies, I mean, that's what they're trying to do. It's part of the same thing. Don't acknowledge what the others did who were crucial for that victory, just like the Greek resistance. So um, much, much more important than the French and Italian resistance from the point of view of the Second World War. The eastern parts of Europe played a decisive role um, at key points of the war, and this used to be... Uh, used to be uh, acknowledged. But, you know, such is history and such are the needs for a different type of history in this world when a new Cold War is beginning, when, uh, you know, as we speak, there's a war being waged by Putin against the Ukraine and by NATO against Putin. That's essentially what's going on and how it will be settled, I do not know. It'll depend not on the Ukrainians. Uh, they can carry on thinking they're independent, though even their more intelligent politicians know they're totally and completely dependent on the United States and NATO. So the decision will be made by the United States when to stop this war and whether to convince Putin that this time they're serious. We shall see. So in a... And, and you know, talking about fascism in the 30s, this continuation of a new type of fascism, in some cases linked to the older varieties, uh, we can see in Ukraine. The Ukraine was the one part of the, of the East where there was collaboration. More Ukrainians fought with the Red Army than fought for Hitler. We should be clear about that. But there was a very strong ultra-nationalist fascist influence, and that's still there in the Azov Brigade. And uh, Westerners show very little understanding of that or are prepared to defend them just because of their sort of dislike of what Putin has done. I don't like Putin. I don't like the invasion of the Ukraine. I opposed it. I wrote against it. But the question is, it's happened. What do we do now? How do we end this war? You've mentioned Stalin a moment ago. Churchill was famous for his hatred of or distaste of leftist revolutionary politics, and especially the Bolsheviks, right? And yet during the Second World War, he simply had to work together with the Soviets. What was his relationship with Stalin like? Quite good for most of the time. <laughs> they got on. What did he really think of him? I think he really thought that he was a sort of, effectively, he was not a proper Bolshevik, that he was more nationalist-oriented, uh, and they could do business with Stalin, which they had to anyway. But, you know, it would have been slightly different had they been doing business with Lenin or uh, Bukharin or Trotsky or any of those old leaders who knew the world. And Stalin, on his part, was uh, totally opportunistic. I mean, the, uh, the it cost many, many Soviet lives, his policies of alliance, temporary alliance with Germany. It's just that he didn't want it to be temporary. He wanted it to carry on and offered Hitler a deal. 
and wouldn't believe it when his generals came up to him a few months before the Nazi invasion of Russia and said, here's the evidence that the Germans are surrounding us here, there, and we have to prepare. He still wouldn't believe it and wrote a friendly letter to Hitler saying, I can't believe that you have aggressive intentions towards us. Now, at the very least, we can call that uh, naivety, but it it shows an inability to understand what was really taking place in the world if you thought you could do a permanent deal with uh, Hitler. I mean, Hitler, from his point of view, could have done it, but he was fearful that the Red Army was too strong. Uh, So before he took the rest of Europe and Britain, he thought better to wipe out the Red Army because they are the main force which would resist us. And in that, he he wasn't wrong. So his surprise attacks on a surprise only for Stalin basically knocked the Russians out for the first uh, eight months of the war. Uh, and then they they recovered and began to fight sort of heroically, uh, and they lost more lives than any other country, or virtually the entire Western countries of Europe put, put together. But it was unnecessary, because had Stalin understood world politics and seen Hitler as the principal enemy at the time, he wouldn't have purged his uh, top generals. I mean, the key generals of the Red Army, who had kept the, won the Bolsheviks the Civil War. Tukhachevsky was regarded as a genius by even his opponents. And he was executed as a German spy. This is a guy who in the last military maneuvers when he was alive had predicted with startling precision how the Germans would attack, where they would attack. Uh, And he said... Blitzkrieg only works for those countries who have no real desire to fight, talking and correctly analyzing what the French later did. But um, he said we can defeat them, provided we don't lose our nerve. What he predicted was exactly what the Germans did, but the Red Army's top high command, which had participated in these war maneuvers, was not there to lead the fight back. They had to recover. Lots of generals imprisoned, but not killed with uh, with, uh, Tukhachevsky, were released when going straight from prison to the front to fight the Germans. So, uh, you know, he was, Stalin wasn't basically, if one wants to characterize him without any other adjectives, he was a very opportunist politician, not very bright, who often got things wrong. The Bengal famine of 1942-43 was one of the worst disasters in 20th century South Asia. It caused, I believe, up to 4 million deaths, an absolutely horrific number, and occurred during the Second World War, of course, when India was still under the British Raj. At the time, Churchill was the prime minister running his war cabinet. What was his role in this catastrophe? Churchill didn't take the famine seriously. In a speech in London during the famine, he said there are lots of people exaggerating the famine. If the famine was what they say it is, how come Gandhi is still alive? He actually made that joke. Sorry, he said, if the famine is real, how come Gandhi is still alive? Yes. Wow. 
Yeah. So, uh, the to be fair, the British administration in India, <clears throat> led by uh, the, the Viceroy's Lord Wavell, were horrified. Lord Wavell's wife visited Bengal and she said, I have never seen human beings looking like starving animals in my whole life. And tried to press the war cabinet to release food for the Bengalis. It's their rice that they had cultivated that been taken to feed the British Army during the Second World War. And that was seen as a priority. And so the Bengalis who were killed, who died because of the famine, three, four million, the figures are disputed, but still in the millions, um, were just regarded as, you know, cannon fodder. Oh, they died. Collateral damage, not a phrase that was used often, but that's the phrase they would use now had, were something similar to happen. Oh, it's collateral damage. And this was huge. And I have to say here that in my book, I don't just criticize Churchill for that. I'm also critical of the Indian elite rulers who are fighting for Indian freedom. None of them, neither Gandhi, nor Jinnah, nor Nehru, went to Bengal during that time to offer some solace, some hope to the Bengalis who were dying in droves in the villages and in the streets of uh, of Calcutta. It was uh, Churchill, of course, uh, as one of his conservative colleagues remarked, is just insane as far as India is concerned. He doesn't recognize them as uh, human beings. And um, his hatred for Gandhi was sort of beyond a joke, actually. I mean, most intelligent English administrators or British administrators of India saw Gandhi as a, a huge, you know, he was fighting them, but he was fighting them in such a way that even when they left, they were confident that elements of the system they had created would be preserved. And that Gandhi and Nehru's Congress party was a key instrument for ensuring that. And that's exactly what happened. You know, to this day, uh, many, many things exist which shouldn't. But um, the Bengal famine was very underplayed, in my opinion, in India as well, till much later. People didn't like talking about it. It's a strange business, this, you know, that when you have undergone a disaster on such a huge scale, those who survived that disaster don't want to talk about it immediately afterwards. The Judeo side of the Second World War is an example. Many, many Jews who had survived, not that many, but those who did survive, and they were survivors, uh, didn't really like to talk about it with, even amongst themselves. It's a psychological thing. It's horrible. It happened, you know, put it in the past like someone dead and gone. It's not till 10, 15 years past that people then begin to write, man, this is what happened, that is what happened. But there have not been too many movies or uh, books about the Bengal famine. And, you know, to my mind, it is it's really shocking 
that given that the left, the Communist Party of India, in Marxist, has been in power in Bengal for 25, 30 years, that no one told them, why not construct a museum of this famine with all the evidence? Still should be done. There should be a museum in Calcutta, to, or Kolkata, to, to, to show what happened. And I'm sure there are many um, well-meaning Indians with a lot of money who will fund it if the West Bengal government can't. It's something which should be, the memory of which should be kept alive. Uh, and, and educate people. This is what happened. This is a concrete war crime and uh, an act of atrocity against our people. This didn't uh, didn't uh, happen, and uh, it's a, it's a blot on these governments who exercise power. But yeah, that was definitely one of Churchill's crimes at a time when people, the British administrators in India, were pleading with him. You know, read the correspondence between uh, the War Office and Wavell and Wavell and Churchill, and uh, you see that. Britain was divide, um, divided. Churchill played a key role. And the war cabinet. You know why you often say Churchill, but I always make a point of adding, and his Labour colleagues in the war cabinet, the Labour leaders in the war cabinet, did nothing either. Well, we have to slowly wrap up. You spoke about this before, but what's fascinating is that we assume that Churchill became this mythical larger-than-life figure immediately after the war, and yet we often forget, as you said, that people voted him out of office immediately after the war ended. The man wasn't as always as popular as we're being led to believe now. So when, and most of all, why did this cult of personality begin? You mentioned Margaret Thatcher and the Falklands War. Yeah, that's when the cult of personality began, in a serious way. But Why? Uh why? Because in order for Thatcher to justify the war tradition of Britain, in order for her to revive memories of when Britain was great, in order for her to try and convince people we can be great again and cover up the fact that that is all over, that the Falklands War, even though it was won, was a stupid, disastrous war, a negotiated settlement between the Conservative government and the Argentinians was perfectly possible. And Lord Carrington, the Foreign Secretary, had already been engaged in negotiation. So this was a war for Thatcher's own personal victories or the victories of the system, new consensus that she was creating, that we can even do this. And this carries on till now, when Britain you know, participates in America's wars. That is what Britain is today, effectively, is you know, one of the states which is completely locked into a, a sort of permanent arrangement with the United States. And um, Churchill is used nonstop for that. He was our common leader during the Second World War. You know, I've recounted in my book the movies made about him, the television series, the uh, books coming out on, you know, which 
trivial things. Almost you feel someone writable. Which toothbrush did Churchill use? And was that toothbrush effective in cleaning his teeth? You know, it's on that level that these uh, things are going on. This was absolutely splendid. Thank you so much. Where can people find your book? Find bookstores everywhere, I suppose? Uh, yeah, this book can be found on... Um, any bookstore, I would say, the chains. But if you want to to help publishers who publish these books, buy it off the Versa website. Right, right. Versa Perfect. Books, who publish the book, actually have a very good website which sells these books. So I would strongly advise people to buy it off the Versa website. Do you have any social media? Where can people follow your work? I, I am on Facebook and Twitter where okay. I don't spend too much time on it at the moment. I <laughs> used to have a best. website, but I don't have one now. Uh, so they can follow my work literally by Googling me, I guess, you know. And I've been busy working on these books and I'm working on my memoirs of the last 40 years now. So it's mainly through books. There are very few people. I write for the New Left Review, of course, and it's blog sidecar. But... There are very few other places I write for these days. I used to write regularly for The Guardian, but The Guardian has become such an appalling newspaper that I find it <laughs> difficult to read, read, leave alone write for it. Uh, <laughs> but it's uh, so, you know, you have to look and find. Perfect. I, people who want to follow me in what I do. I think Verso is probably, the Verso website is probably the best. Again, thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. Alrighty. First of all, just a massive, massive thank you to my patrons, aka producers, Taichi, Veronica, Mila, and Carmen. You absolute legends are the reason why this podcast will keep going. For the rest of you, if you enjoyed listening to the what we back in the Slavlands call the program, uh, please do consider following on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, subscribing on YouTube, and of course, becoming a patron on Patreon. Thanks!